Welcome to another Christian Education National Podcast. Another episode where we bring you the audio of a presentation that has and hopefully will continue to encourage Christian educators. May it be an encouragement to you in your work for His Kingdom. Privilege to open up the scriptures again this morning, and we're actually speaking into this virtue of wonder uh, for a little while as we commence. I'm uh, wearing my uh, NIC graduate I Am Changed badge today, and if you're an alumni uh, from the Institute, come by and get the badge and we'll be talking more with you. Uh, Drop by and see us today. I studied uh, back in 1999, and uh, it was a life-changing experience for me, led straight on to some doctoral studies as well, and uh, 1999 was was a great year of of, uh, learning and loving scripture in new ways as well. Uh, Last Sunday at our church, I happened to be preaching on uh, Deuteronomy 22, 1 to 12. And uh, within that portion of scripture, there is uh, verse 5, which says, A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. And uh, after the service, uh, a couple of our young members of the church, uh, brother and sister, 14, 15, 18 or so, came up to me and said, what does the Bible actually have to say to the really complex issues of our day? Um, The word they used was, the Bible's really old and naive. And our world is really complex with new technology and issues that biblical writers had no idea about. And I said, what are the biggest issues, do you reckon? They said, uh, the two big ones, gender and abortion. I said, what about Israel Folau? And they said, oh, not that much at our school. But, you know, he he, uh, quotes scripture, but he's got tattoos. And isn't there a verse in the Bible that says you shouldn't have tattoos? And... um, I met with them for a coffee on Friday and um, the big question that they were asking is is for me the big question. The question was, how do you move from text, ancient translated uh, text, to the issues of our day? We're interested in that, of course, in education. But how do we read and interpret and then understand the scriptures well for our day? Uh, Yesterday, our speakers uh, worked with text, and uh, during the day, I heard uh, expositions and reflections from Genesis 1 and 2 uh, around Sabbath, um, from Psalm 6, uh, talking about patterns and rhythms in text. Um, Today, I want to open up a little bit of two kings, uh, but I do want to say that uh, this is the question for me that finally... Um, brings to life our educational practice. We, we do get to practice. We do get to pedagogy, curriculum, classroom practices of all sorts. But we do it from a deep immersion in Scripture. Uh, those young people uh, need to be part of a community, a church, I trust, a school, where they are helped for the rest of life to read probably the most difficult book we're ever going to ask them to read, the Bible. They need to be helped to think deeply and profoundly about biblical memorising, biblical immersion, and so do we. 
and moving from text to life is the challenge we face to do that well. So I would invite critique of our speakers as we open up scripture and what we do with scripture is surely the most important question because finally it impacts the God that we love, the gospel that we believe in, our faith, hope, love, practice, life at every level. I want to talk today about the virtue of wonder and suggest that many of us need to rediscover wonder for the text. Wonder is a great word and I was thrilled that we sang a song which featured that uh, word just now. In William Brown's book called Wisdom's Wonder, Character, Creation and Crisis in the Bible's Wisdom Literature, a book I'd certainly recommend, he explores wonder and says it has something to do with both astonishment and perplexity. He says it's bewildered curiosity. He suggests it has this double aspect of both bewilderment or perplexity, which is unsettling, and curiosity, which has to do with this desire to know more and to move into scripture or whatever else. Wonder, he says, has to do with both being unsettled and destabilised and being fascinated. Here's one of the quotes from Brown's book. In wonder, fascination overcomes fear, desire overcomes dread, desire captures well the affiliative power of wonder, wonder awakens desire, and with desire comes a new attentiveness, a freshness of perception that imbues the world with a certain luring quality. What a great word, luring. Wonder is both being unsettled, destabilised, disoriented, uh, somewhat, Brown says, like fear. But it is also curiosity, fascination, captivation, persuasion, enticement, being induced. And I want to suggest that wonder is a virtue that we've perhaps lost in our reading of Scripture, particularly Deuteronomy or Leviticus or Haggai or Zechariah or Lamentations or the great texts that Jesus knew and loved and filled. My prayer is that such wonder will attend our immersion in Scripture for our engagement with culture and the tension that that brings. Unbearable in Newbigin's mind, significant, I believe, tension that we will live with because we want to be faithful to the word, the gospel, to King Jesus, and we want to be incisive and courageous in the times in which we live. We noted yesterday that Paul participated in a world that he wrote to in Ephesians, being renewed by Jesus, a world which I said I believed he understood as being reconciled, astounded, grateful, 
and yet opposed. And so in Ephesians 6 we read, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Paul is thinking of resurrection. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, powers of the dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We dare not underestimate the opposition to the gospel that was there in the first century and is certainly here in new ways in the 21st century. Paul's was a world in which power was reimagined, in which love was reimagined. In the full light of the king's crucifixion, burial, resurrection and rule, everything is different. Ephesians is fundamentally a letter of prayer, praise, doxology, prayer and reflection and then prayer and then reflection and then prayer. It's just this astounding commitment to pray about the astounding new world and yet the opposition that Paul still faced as the gospel spread. The full Hebrew scriptures have prepared us for the kingdom in which Jesus is the true Caesar. Story after story in Old Testament scripture has sought to evoke in its readers wonder, bewildered curiosity, fascination, new attentiveness. And one of those stories I want to speak out briefly now. It's the story of Naaman, the Syrian commander and leper. And let me say a few words about how wondrous this story is for us this morning. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 27. It's an absolutely critical story and Luke refers to it in the New Testament. But here is the portion I want to look at this morning. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. She served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, she's speaking of Elisha, he would cure him of his leprosy. This action takes place in the north of Israel, in the land of Aram or Syria, with its capital of Damascus. And at every point in the story, and we're just looking at the first scene, God is turning the world upside down and challenging our understanding of status and power. In this scene, which uh, is quite wondrous, God brings into dialogue an exiled slave girl and a great military man. And in this scene, nothing is quite what you expect. She, the unnamed slave woman, is an Israelite in exile. Naaman is a Syrian commander, 
She, in the Hebrew, is a little maiden. It's a terminology of powerless, a little maiden. He is an Ishgadol, a great man. She is a captive servant. He is a powerful commander. He has fame. She has none. He has a name. She has none in the story. She serves his wife. She is at the mercy of her captors. Look at the language for Naaman, commander, great, highly regarded, victory, valiant soldier. Yet when this great military man, this man of valour, is found to have leprosy, threatening his career, his influence, his very life, eventually, who is it that has a message of hope? No one in Syria can help him. Not the king, not the army members. No one in Syria has a message of hope. The slave woman in exile is God's agent of hope to the commander of Syria's powerful armies. This is a story which is much neglected, like so many others in scripture, pretty well unknown, I think. But it's a story like so many others where power, real power, the power of flourishing life, hope, resides with the one who is unnamed and apparently weak. Power in weakness is one of the greatest themes of the stories of Scripture emerging into Philippians 2. We heard it read this morning. And the book's first readers would have noted that the girl in the text is in exile. Despite her captivity... She is not bitter or silent. She shares what she knows about the Lord and the Lord's prophet. She seeks the welfare of her captors. We often hear Deuteronomy 29, 7 quoted in current days, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. And that's exactly what she does. Here's an unnamed little maiden behaving like Joseph in Egypt with his wisdom and forgiveness and blessing, like Daniel in Babylon, faithful, prayerful, resilient, courageous. Esther in Susa, if I perish, I perish. She is a prophet and a leader of her day, eventually. And so many others in scripture who display God's grace and care for their conquerors and captors. But she is an unnamed little maiden. Don't you look forward to meeting her one day and speaking with her about this, her only appearance in Scripture? Three verses, just these texts. But the part she plays is wonderful. We don't know her name, but everything else that occurs in this story is because of her. The quiet miracle of Naaman's cleansing 
in the Jordan where he bathed, the remarkable testimony of the great commander that Israel's God was truly the only God only occurred because the little maiden was neither bitter nor silent in exile. Jesus retells this story in part in Luke and he tells it with a real bite in the tail. He says, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, but not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian and all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Power turned upside down. Rights, claims, expectations turned upside down. Extravagant grace breaking through the expectations and boundaries. What wonder in these stories. In 2 Kings, Naaman returns to Elisha's house as a believer in Yahweh. And here are the words of his testimony. He says, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Thanks to the testimony of the little maiden, a young woman in exile who cares for the family of which she is a slave, and then Elisha, a self-effacing and faithful prophet, a simple act of obedience, washing in the Jordan River, and a wonderful conversion. We may compare this story to the conversion brought about through Jonah, the reluctant prophet, as Nineveh turned to the Lord after just a couple of words of preaching. Or to Rahab, who with her family and others was saved at the conquest of Jericho and married into the line of Messiah Jesus. Or Ruth, the Moabite woman who chooses to serve the God of Israel and steps into the family line of David and Jesus with Boaz. And here, Naaman, a Syrian military commander who turns to the Lord and in 2 Kings 5.19, Elisha says to Naaman, go in peace. Shalom. Shalom is upon your life. Go in peace. Wonder. We won't have the wonder that God longs for us, which is the ground of wisdom in Brown's book, without wonder for the text, wonder for the not often told stories now of many Old Testament books which Jesus fills. We won't understand Jesus without stories like this. We won't understand the cross, resurrection, what Paul says about power, discipleship, or our current tasks without wonder for these stories. Let's cultivate it through our deep immersion in scripture, in gospel, our courageous engagement in culture, living with the tension that that brings for our time and place. And let's help young people like our friends back at church to move well from Deuteronomy 22 to talking about gender in our time and place. It's not easy but we need communities to do it with. 
So let's be those communities. Let me pray. Father, you are wonderful. And the scriptures are wonderful. And we praise you for stories about the world turned upside down, about exile, captivity, power, powerlessness, restoration and hope, cleansing and purpose, the cross and the resurrection. We look forward to meeting the little maiden. Thank you for her story. And thank you for the conference day. May we be struck with wonder throughout the day as you speak with us and lead us through your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.